Welcome to The Lead from New Lines magazine. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. It's thought that there are around 40 million nomads in the world today, a population similar in size to Poland, Iraq, or Argentina. Most of them have been pushed to the fringes of more populous sedentary societies, and all too often are treated with suspicion or even open hostility by urban authorities. But this has not always been the case. In fact, historically speaking, the present global dominance of settled peoples is a dramatic break from the past. For most of human history, nomadic empires frequently dominated their settled neighbors. The high watermark of nomadic supremacy was the Mongol Empire created by Genghis Khan, which remains to this day the largest contiguous land empire ever. It's only over the last few hundred years that the balance has shifted in the other direction. I'm joined today by Marie Favreau, a historian at Paris Nanterre University and the author of The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World. Marie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paisa. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I thought we would start by asking you about this word horde. It's a word with a long and, and complicated history, but it's also a word that has quite a lot of baggage attached to it. Um, I think when people hear the word horde, they immediately think of a like a big angry mog, they imagine barbarians at the gate. Sure, yes. Yeah, but the horde you talk about is very far from that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the horde in the past, um, it's its a very old word, especially in, you know, Asian culture and Asian, Asian languages. The word itself means um, an organized nomadic state, uh, an organized uh, nomadic uh, military headquarters. It can be also... Um, you know, a nomadic power. So not only uh, military power, but like with all the families and, you know, a huge population. Uh, but it means something mm. that, you know, that is sophisticated, that is organized, uh, something very different from what we call the horde today. But the words changed when it came into all these, it entered all these uh, Western languages, uh, Middle Eastern languages also in the 13th century after the foundation of the Mongol Empire, then, you know, people start talking, oh, they were those, there are those hordes, uh, what, they're, they're those nomadic organizations, we've never seen that in, you know, in settled societies, it's something different, something big, and we don't have words for it, so they kept this word, hordes, mm. so we still use it today, so, so we, most of the time people forgot, you know, the uh, original sense of it. But it was a deliberate choice, I guess, to use such a loaded word. Yes, absolutely, because it's something different. It's organized, it's impressive, it's powerful, but it's not something that is connected to sedentary or settled society. So that's why they kept it. And it's funny because they really kept it in all languages, like Arabic, Persian, Russian, uh, Slavic languages in general, uh, Latin languages in general. So the world appeared, appeared everywhere in the 13th century. So And it's connected. Yeah, it's connected to the Mongol um, experience. And even today, I mean, in those languages, the word horde has a negative connotation. Yeah, very often. That's true. Um, and that's why also I really wanted to keep it in my work because that's what I see in the sources. This is the word the Mongols and the nomads use for themselves. They were proud of it. This is their organization. as It means, in a way, if you want to translate it, it means empire. It means, you know, sophisticated mm. state organization. And uh, so I wanted to keep it. And it's interesting to see how people react to it. They are surprised. Like, how how come you keep this word? But it's a word they use for themselves. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what they call themselves. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's important to think about it, to think about the words we use and, you know, how we can change their meaning, right? Yeah, I mean, before I started reading your book, I would have assumed that the negative connotations the word hoard for, has for us, I mean, by us, I mean, you know, people from sedentary societies who, who live in cities and pay taxes and, I guess, listen to podcasts. I mean, at least two of those three, at least. I would have assumed that the negative connotations dated all the way back to the Mongol conquest. But actually, there's there's a bit more complexity to it because for their, for those medieval contemporaries that you talk about in the book, in China, in Europe, and in the Middle East, of course, they looked at this empire as a subject of fear, but also they looked at it in awe. And this is what you describe in the book. You describe the perception as a brutal but socially constructive. Yes, absolutely. The thing is, the first, of course, the first contact was brutal. And uh, people were scared, really scared. And they said, it is something new. We've never seen it. Actually, not all of them. In Central Asia, some sedentary, settled, you know, uh, people, cities have seen, have seen um, uh, nomads before. But in, in the West or in, you know, in... Uh, Western Slavic world, they were really surprised, so they were scared. But after like a generation or so, um, things changed because the Mongols uh, were uh, extremely, um, you know, integrate people. Uh, they integrate people because they want more population, they want more taxpayers, they want more traders. Uh, they are quite open to integrate new you know, new societies, even even though they are settled societies. Yeah. So um, so the contact changed and then the apprehension moved also and they people start being curious, you know. Oh, well, we were scared, but actually something's happening and there are a lot of positive also impacts that people feel that even at the end of the 13th century, people could tell, well, we, we, we are rebuilding cities everywhere. We are uh, uh, free of, you know, of doing a lot of things we were not you know, like religion, um, uh, of, we, we, we benefit from the Mongol Empire. So their perception right. of the Mongols and of the nomads changed also during the 13th century. Well, let's get to some of that, because I want to talk about, you mentioned religion and also governance um, and what these settled peoples would have thought of the, um, the horde that was arriving on horseback. But let's, let's start where you talk about where you start in the book, which is you're focusing on one particular horde, which is the one that is referred to as the Golden Horde or the Kipchak Khanate. And this is one of the successor states of Genghis Khan's empire. Now, that, that history, I think, is likely to be quite unfamiliar to a lot of listeners. So I was hoping you might give a, a brief overview of it. Like, who were these people? Where did they rule? And then I guess, you know, we'll get to it later. What happened to them? Yeah, so this is uh, the Western part of the Mongol Empire, actually. So this Mongol Empire, founded by Genghis Khan in 1206, covered most of Eurasia, from what is Korea today to Hungary. Uh, it covered north of India in the south, uh, Iran, it covered Afghanistan, of course, it's covered also in the north, all of almost all of what is Russia today and Central Asia. So it's it's huge empire. But the Western part of it that we call the Horde of the Golden Horde uh, was uh, connected to the um, uh, the eldest son of Genghis Khan, Jochi. So it's a specific lineage, right? But it's still in the Mongol Empire, right? So it's still a Mongol way of governing, a Mongol way of doing, a Mongol way of thinking. Um, they covered right. what is, let's say, Russia today, Poland, a little bit of Poland, Caucasus, um, 
uh, a bit of Anatolia as well. So it's really the West, the connection. So it's interesting because it connects to the West also. It's really the Mongol door to the West. They had a lot of connection with Germans, yeah. with um, French, English, it, Italian, of course, uh, also. So we have a lot of sources on this relationship. And in my work, I really wanted to show how this part of the Mongol Empire was active in terms of trade, art, culture, exchange, diplomatic exchange, also with the West. And um, so that's uh, a very specific part of the Mongol Empire, let's say. But it's... Um, uh, and we have yeah. sources, so we can speak about it because that's the other problem for historians. Sometimes it's like, you know, it's difficult. It's very obscure. In this case, we have enough. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the difficulty, is it? Because these nomadic peoples didn't keep written records in the way that other empires did. Yeah. Actually, they produced written records, and especially the Mongols, but they don't necessarily keep them. That's a, the very interesting thing with nomads say, and Mongols. Uh, they 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 are able to do exactly the same thing as sedentary people. As settled people, they can you know build, they can cities, they can produce written materials. But when when they feel it's not useful anymore, they just drop. They just you know withdraw and then they give up. They give up on their city. They give up on their written material. They don't care because it's not the point. It's just it's useful at some point and at some other point it's not useful anymore. That's where they are very special. Mm. So these um, uh, Mongol in you know the West and Russia and what is Russia today uh, lasted for a long time. They started so their power took shape in the 13th century. In the 14th century, they were really dominant and very powerful. And in uh, you know in the 15th century, they start you know splitting and they're you know changing and the the whole state that we call the Horde disappeared in the early 16th century. So it's really long, you know, uh, almost three centuries. Yeah, 300 years almost, yeah. And how did they govern? Because when you talk about, or when you hear people talk about the Mongol conquest, they naturally focus on that part, the conquests. But it's not as it's not as common to hear about what happened afterwards, the governing part. And I think that part is perhaps the most interesting part of the story, because their method of administration was different to what those peoples that they conquered would have been used to. Yes, you're right. I mean, actually, uh, I realized working on this that even during the conquest time, where we usually focus on war, but actually they start administrating people. So uh, the Mongols were very early on. Their idea was not like to just, you know, destroy. They wanted people to be part of their own, you know, empire, of their own hordes. So they would administrate them very early on and they would develop some institution that would help them to connect with the cities or, you know, uh, people in villages and, um, you know, uh, um, um, yeah, uh, all sorts of different people. So the first, the first oh. thing I would say is, as many actually empire, they would... I call it, we call it like the politics of difference, that they manage differences. They don't mind that people, yeah. I mean, they are, it's not that they don't mind, they really realize that people are different. So they are of different religion, different languages, different scripts, different ways of doing, different way of to measure times, for instance, different way of trading. So Mongol deal with all these differences very well in the sense that they um, allow those differences to exist in their own administration. So have, they have different kind of secretaries. People who are able to talk to everybody in every language. So they don't force people to be one. That's uh, one key aspect. 
The other one is they don't want to control people all the time. They don't go to cities and stay there to control their um, like settlers, uh, the settlers as subject sedentary taxpayers. No, they don't do that. They just agree with them on an amount of tax that should be paid. And once in a year, uh, some of them go and pick up, you know, the um, the income, the tax. Uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, they, uh, the, the way they control is like there's clear control, but it's just it's not every day. It doesn't need to be every day. Uh, people need to know that they can be reached so in the cities. People can go to the hoard. Sometimes they go for months. Sometimes they go even, you know, for a year. We have cases of Russian princes going to the Mongol hoard for more than one year sometimes. That's very important for the Mongols. Mm-hmm. They care that people, their subject, come and see them and talk to them physically, like face-to-face um, discussions. It's very important. Uh, but... Otherwise, they are not, you know, they live their own life. Everybody lives his own life, his own way of doing. So they deal very well with this difference. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's sort of reading the book, it sort of reminded me of the the early Arab empires after the coming of Islam, because they were in the same way, they were conquering civilizations that were very different to them. And then they were just kind of leaving them alone. But in the Arab context, of course, there was a religious aspect to it. But with the Mongols, it wasn't religious. So what did the Mongols want out of this conquest? No, you're right. It was not religious. I mean, the Mongols um, want to... It is not just one reason to the Mongol conquest. It's a century of conquest. So you can imagine that the context is different. When it's Genghis Khan, he had to deal with his neighbors, northern China, uh, a, a part of Central Asia. Then after him, his successors would have also to they would go on with the conquest, but the context had changed. So the question often is like, oh, why would they go on? Why would they continue to expand? What what, what are they after? But in fact, um, it's very much the context that explains why they are going on, um, uh, especially the, the trade context. Mongols like to renegotiate their um, trade relationship with the outside world. So once they come, they become bigger, more powerful. They say to their neighbors, look, we had uh, trade terms. Now we change the trade terms because we are more powerful and bigger. And so we want more like this. You pay this price for this. Now the price has changed or, you know, something like that. So they mm. that that's one of the explanation. Right. So these trades, you know, uh, kind of relationship with the outside world. The other explanation is. Uh, nomadic world. For the Mongols, nomads were more important than settled peoples, much more important. I mean, the, you have to think about, think 13th century. 13th century in Eurasia, the most powerful polities, organization, empires were nomads. They were not, um, you know, sedentary peoples. So for them, uh, the, I mean, what they were after was just to control uh, or to put under their own supervision all the nomads in Eurasia. They were really after them everywhere. So uh, I think it's always uh, kind of funny because often I hear, well, nomad. I mean, Mongol, they were after, the Mongols were after cities and they wanted to loot cities and they wanted to control them, most of everything. But no, what they wanted was first to control the other nomads. And once they controlled them, then... You know, they integrate also cities and, you know, uh, villages and, and, and all. But um, it was not their first, ta- I mean, like, target. 
So they wanted to control the other nomads. And then was the logic that by controlling the, the sedentary populations, you were able to gain money, gain taxes from these sedentary populations, and that enabled you to be more strong in keeping down the other nomads? Yes, abs well, that's true. But at the same time, you, uh, nomads pay also taxes. Isn't taxes are not only, I mean, this income, there's part of an income from the cities, but there's also a lot of uh, income coming from nomads. Nomads at that time were, were not only warrior, so it's not only military power, it's also economic power. They were powerful herders. They had huge herds. Uh, and uh, mm. so they paid taxes on their herds. So that's also key for these, you know, uh, these, for the Mongols. Um, and also, uh, if you think about um, the Middle Ages and, you know, this period of 13th century, the, the, the wealth um, is people. It's more important to have people in your state than to have anything else, even gold or silver, whatever. I mean, what, or, or, or worse, or like having lands, great. You have lands without people, what does it mean? Nothing, right? They needed to have large populations. Exactly, they want more populations because it's it's a it's a fragile world. I mean, it's um, people die. I mean, it's 13th century or 14th centuries, you know, there'll be also uh, the uh, terrible uh, pandemic of, you know, black, we'd call it the Black Death or mm -hmm. the plague and all. So uh, uh, having more people, strong people, having more population is, is the most important thing for states, for power. So um, the Mongol, as uh, all nomadic rulers, they want to have more people. That's why they are interested in cities, because there's, it's huge demography there. They wanted those people for, for what purpose? For them to be productive or to intermarry with them so that their own population remains stable? Well, most of all, production, sure. They would also produce, you know, um, art, science, craftsmen were extremely valued in Mongol society. So it's not only like paying taxes, you know, it's also mm. what you can produce with your hands. Right. That's very important. Uh, now for intermarriage is more complicated because uh, if you're coming from the most, the highest lineages, like your nobleman, your noble Mongol nobleman, you will not marry with um, settled, um, I think, uh, even lords. Uh, you would, you know, marry your daughters to other, you know, uh, Mongol lords. Uh, so um, they would um, uh, marry their in, in the west of the Mongol Empire, Mongol uh, Khan, Mongol rulers, would marry their daughters to Russian princes, sometimes an Armenian princes, were their most important uh, sedentary subjects. But this is very, you know, specific. And this is because they were highly valued subjects. So they didn't do... They didn't do something which is very familiar from, you know, the royal families of, of Europe and the Middle East, where they, they intermarry with their allies and they marry, they make alliances through marriage. They wouldn't do that. Well, there are numerous Mongol lineages. They would do it inside the Mongol Empire, but they would not do it with outsiders. Except, actually, in the western part of the Mongol Empire, the Horde, you have just one case. So the Mongols were allied there with the Mamluks, so the Egyptian and Syrian rulers uh, from, you know, a, a Turkic background, mm. Turkish background. So once it happened that the Mamluk Sultan asked for a Mongol bride, but that was just something new and absolutely unexpected. So the Mongols were puzzled because they thought, well, the Mamluks are allied, but they're not vassals. So we don't usually send them, 
you know, Mongol princesses and they, they didn't know what to do. So it took them like three years or something of negotiation. And then they sent one Mongol princess to the Mamluk Sultan. But that's just one exceptional case. Yeah. So most of the time, um, they don't do like the Byzantines who would send their princes everywhere. The Mongol princesses, they can also say no. So it's, it's a very different society. You cannot just send them everywhere like as diplomatic gift. No way. Yeah, well, I've heard you tell that story about the bride who went to the Mamluks. But perhaps you could finish the rest of the story for the listeners. So the bride arrives in, I guess, in Cairo at the time. Yeah, she arrived in Alexandria, then Cairo. And uh, so she had her marriage. But the Mongol Khan decided, okay, if this sultan asks for a Mongol bride, it means that he wants to be my vassal. And also he needs to pay for the marriage and uh, for, for the bride. So that is how they understood it. They understood, whereas, for example, you might say in the more Western states, like in the Middle East and further West, they understood it to be a marriage between equals. You know, the English prince will marry, I don't know, the Russian queen or whatever it is. But... Here, with the Mongols, they understood it as they only marry their daughters off to vassal states, states that they are completely in control of. Yes, absolutely. So the Mamluk Sultan thought, wow, this is great. I will marry this uh, Mongol princess, and that will show that I'm an equal at the Mongol Khan. But the Mongols, they thought, okay, the Mamluks now wants to be our vassals. Mm. So, okay, fine, strange, but fine. Right, so, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> they thought they were acquiring through marriage what they would have to normally fight a war for. Yeah. So that's the beginning of the long misunderstanding. So the Mamluk Sultan was very upset because then he realized that he had to pay a lot in exchange for the princess. He was so upset that at some point he got divorced, actually, and then she was married to someone else. We, we, we still have, you know, some, a lot of information on this Mongol princess. You know, she was buried in Cairo with a burial monument there. So Yeah, to this day, that monument is still there. It's still there, absolutely, yes. It's very interesting to see this connection, you know, between Middle East and, and the Mongol Empire. So that brings me to something else that I wanted to talk about, about the the religion within the empire and the laws. So at some point, the the Mongol Empire embraced Islam and the empire became a Muslim empire. Was that one of those rare instances of a conquered people influencing the conquerors? Yes and no. Um, let's say that uh, the Mongols have this ability to absorb their subjects, culture and religion. So they were very interested in having uh, Muslim subject and con and being connected to them, and they were interested in uh, Islam very early on, especially in the hordes. Is part of the Mongol Empire. The, one of the Khan, uh, I think we probably it was probably the first Mongol prince and then Khan to convert to Islam in the uh, mid 13th century, so really early on, before the conquest of Baghdad, right? Um, but uh, the, the interesting thing is. Um, it, it doesn't. It didn't mean that the Mongols sort of quit the other religions in their empire. So the Mongols had their own belief system. They are. Uh, they believe in the spirit of their ancestors. They believe in Tengri, the god sky. Uh, so they have their own belief. They keep their own belief and they add more. Mm -hmm. So when they had Islam to their own belief, um, the interesting thing is they also transform Islam from inside. Um, uh, Islam was, is, is a very complex religion. Uh, many um, uh, jurists, you know, and ulema, and so um, uh, 
like people of the, the Muslim clergy were very active, actively trying to uh, adopt Mongol customs also. So it's it's a very interesting, very rich mix between, you know, Mongol tradition and Islamic tradition. So you mean that in some parts of the Muslim world that they conquered, there was also this, this kind of integration in some way with some aspects of Mongol culture? Absolutely. In Central Asia, in what is, you know, also Russia today, a lot of Muslim communities were interested and benefited from the Mongol system and from the Mongol interest for Islam. The Muslim clergy would not pay taxes because they have to pray for the Mongol royal family, right? right? So they don't pay taxes and they don't go to war because, you know, if you're a religious man, you don't go to war. And so in the Muslim community, they they benefit from this because then they could they don't pay taxes so they have more money and they invest the money into mosque, into madrasa school, into hammam, into the everyday life, you know, institutions. So they, the community benefit from this system. And there was this very interesting relationship between the Mongol culture and Mongol, so uh, under the Mongol rulers and uh, the Muslim community everywhere in the Mongol Empire. So um, they really had a sort of very rich relationship and very, you know, kind of very... I would say, peaceful relationship. And uh, we have this idea that the Mongols, they destroyed Baghdad. That they, they it, Indeed, they killed the Abbasid Caliph. And so it's very bad for the Muslim world. Mm. But that's one event. That's, it's, it's 1258, right? But what, ha- what happened after that is so different. So um, Islam flourished everywhere in Central Asia uh, and very open, you know, Islam, Sufism, uh, under the Mongols. They built everywhere, uh, you know, uh, beautiful uh, um, um, sites, and this is really the Mongol period. So that's um, that's that's interesting. Also, you know what? The Mongols they loved in they loved manuscripts, although they are nomads, but they love manuscripts and they love uh, in the manuscript they love paintings, they love miniatures, they love to see portraits and figures. So they ask their Muslim scholars to have. All those beautiful, you know, uh, paintings in the manuscript. So uh, Muslim paintings developed uh, tremendously in the 13th and 14th century under the Mongol. Mm. That's really a direct connection. You know, that's very interesting. That's one aspect of of how they changed the societies that they were that they conquered. Yeah. So let's talk specifically about Russia because the Horde's legacy is very pronounced in Russia, and I wanted to talk a bit about about that and about the politics of memory. So yeah, Russian scholarship talks about the the tartar yoke and that's how they present the hordes regime as it was unambiguously stifling and oppressive it was the dark age before modern russian history begins you are very critical of this view you think that modern russian history not only begins with the horde but it begins because of it Absolutely. That's really triggered my will to write this book about the Horde. It's because in the way Russian history was written, it was so, so wrong in many ways. Um, the Mongol period of what we call Russia, it's more than three centuries because it, it goes on after that. And it's a very complex and rich period. So saying, as you can see in some you know, school book, that, oh, that's why... But all the problems in, you know, uh, 18th, 19th century Russia come from, you know, the Mongol period. That's why they were, you know, they had more trouble to get into modernity or because of the Mongols or the Mongols is really the barbarian period of Russia. But when you look at the sources, when you look at even what 
the Russian of that time said of the Mongols, you see, you have a very completely different picture. Um, first of all, the relationship was more, much more peaceful than we used to think of, you know, uh, before. Um, the relationship between the Russian princes, even the Russian cities and the Mongols were not that bad. They were living, you know, where they were really, like, there were a lot of respects. Uh, and uh, they understood each other quite well. And also the, the Russian uh, under Ivan IV, uh, so within the 16th, mid-16th century, they would, uh, when they start, you know, building what we call Muscovy, and then the Moscow starts, you know, rising, they would, you know, use so much of the, what the Mongol uh, uh, taught them about, you know, um, a governance, about how to, uh, titles like the title Tsar, it was a title the, the Russian uh, used to give to the Khan, to the Mongol ruler, then before using it for themselves. So this political connection, administrative connection, this huge legacy, um, it's, it was just erased from school books, from, you know, from, it was like it never existed in, in you know, R Russian history. Mm. So I think it's really important to bring back the nomad <laughs> into the picture. And so, well, look, uh, it's more complicated than, uh, of course, for a long period, the Russian dominated uh, in 20th century Mongolia, but for an even longer period, Mongol dominated, you know, Russia with very different effects, I see more positive effects. And this is what you mean by the Mongols changing history, that they, you believe that they changed the course of Russian history? Yes, because the Russian principalities were all fragmented and uh, they were like on the, on the march. Uh, the core of, you know, the economic leadership uh, in the early 13th century, it's uh, Islamic Central Asia, uh, and it's really, you know, it's not, it's certainly not the North. But the Mongol coming, Mongol coming from the North, and with their integrative ways of doing, uh, would change the course of uh, the uh, Russian history, because they would integrate all those petty Russian principalities into the huge Islamic, you know, uh, markets. Uh, they would integrate them into Central Asia, they would connect them to uh, Western Europe uh, because Mongols were all for trade. They were all for circulation of things, ideas, people. So they forced the Russian principality to open their doors. So, um, uh, and, and it worked, it worked. And the, the, also the other interesting thing is for the Mongols, the, the North was, we are all of, I mean, I don't know, maybe not all, but many people still today are afraid of the North. They think the North of the world is like, you know, ice and, and cold and dark and scary. Mm. But in this 13th and 14th century, under the Mongols, the North of the world was like, um, uh, it was, um, the economic leadership was there. It was very active. It was full of trade roads, full of merchants and caravans, and, you know, very active in all sorts of ways. So um, we, it's hard for us to, you know, to show on maps because we don't have maps for these periods for the north, like uh, Siberia. It sounds like, wow, so far away. But it was a center at that time. They said that the Mongols made it the center of the world. So I think that's um, that's where they really changed the course of history for the Russians and for you know all of Eurasia. Mm. And then what about their own legacy? We had the the travel writer Anthony Satine on the show a few months ago, and he talked about how nomadic empires tend to, in general, not leave behind as many monuments as settled empires. So what did they leave behind that we can see today? 
or that we can experience today at least? Well, I think that um, they leave behind um, a way of living. Uh, the relationship they had and still have with um, environment is, is, is very specific to them. The way how they are able to split when they say, oh, it's too heavy on, on nature. Like if you think about um, um, too many people on one, in one place, like a city with like millions of people, it's, we know it's bad for the environment. And the Mongols, they were really able to decide, okay, we need a balance between, you know, demography and nature. So they tried their own way in back in time in the 13th, 14th century, but still today, nomads are able to say, okay, the herd is too big, we have to split. Their, their ability to split and to move on, to move to another place because it's bad for nature, I think it's uh, something we can still learn from. That uh, that's one thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing is um, the way they absorb other people without fearing them. I mean, nomads still today are very, are very open. They, they just, you know, you, you're, you're a foreigner to just come, you pass their door and they, they say, okay, come. And then just, you can stay with them. You know, you just, you take, uh, you're part of the work and, um, and they are, they don't feel threatened by foreigners. And you see that already in this, you know, a uh, big nomadic empires of the middle age, the fact that they, they are really able to integrate other people, other cultures, other religions without being threatened, without being really feared by them. And I think that's amazing. I felt also that reading the book that you weren't only trying to retell the story of uh, of the Mongols, but you're also trying to retell the story of, of what we know about human history. And this was something that Anthony Satine said. He said that that we need to understand that there's been an imbalance in the human story, meaning that the traditional tellings of history don't recognize the degree to which these nomadic societies have actually shaped the past and therefore the present. Yeah, I totally agree with Anthony Satin on this. Uh, the fact that for long period, the way we taught history was either without nomads or nomads were the barbarians, the guys who were against the state, against all form of organization. They were, you know, you know uh, like raiding cities and not uh, like building anything. Uh, so I think uh, uh, it's very important that we change our perspective now and that we integrate them because it's what we see in the sources. It's not even like a moral, you know, target I have. It's like what I see in my sources, huge states, empires were run by nomads in the past. We have to take them into account. They have to have their place in the way we write and talk about his human history. And we can learn from this, sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, also... Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm teaching at the university. I have many students. All my students, they come to me and they say, well, we've never heard of that. We've never heard of the Mongol impact on, you know, world history, like positive impact. We've never heard of, you know, nomadic empires uh, before. Uh, they are curious. So the idea is not to tell them you should learn that way. It's just to say, look, this happened. Look mm. at, look at, you know, yeah. all the sources and monuments and burials because we have archaeology. So... It's, it's like really a new avenue for research. I, I do get the impression that, and actually Satine was very much like this about nomads, that you start to feel, perhaps not unreasonably, that the Horde have been, they've been treated rather unfairly by history and you become a little bit sympathetic to these empires. Well, that's true, but uh, absolutely, of course, that's the beginning of my research. I was like, well, it's not, I read books by Russian historians, also Westerners and historians. And then I, I look at the source and say, oh, there's a big difference here. So that's the 
that's true. But then I'm a historian and I'm aware that, you know, let's, I'm not, a, you know, I don't ha like the romantic view of nomads. I've been to many countries where there are still nomads today, um, in Mongolia, but also in North, Northern Africa, in Mauritania, in many places. Mm. I know how difficult nomadic life can be too. So, I mean, it's not, the idea is not to say, oh, this is the ideal way of living. It's just, well, it's, we have to be fair. I mean, historians have to be fair with what he sees in his documents. And when you see that there were those nomadic quarters in charge for so long, well, we have to deal with it. We, we like it or not, we have to deal with it. So, and the other thing is, um, the, uh, I mean, the, the big question is, there are two, two questions. One is, uh, that I, 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 when I fight for is okay. I learned before when I was younger through my teacher that all oh, nomads, once they come to uh, cities, they want to sedentarize because there's nothing better than city life. Mm. But what you see in those documents is not true. They are not only proud to be nomads, but they would never settle and sedentarize. The Mongol never, never sedentarized. So that's. A very interesting to know to understand that like think about this process uh, like no they don't they move on and they do something else they build up something else but they don't sit on twice and the other one of course is because you're a nomadic ruler do you rule differently from a sedentary ruler do we think that um a mongol khan was very different from a, a i don't know like an, a french king for instance uh so this is a question that's still open we are working on it Mm. But do you ever worry that you might overcorrect? I mean, I see the logic of saying these these uh, empires had an important role in world history and you have to repudiate the stereotype of this warlike barbarian horde. But whatever else they achieved, these conquests did lead to immense destruction. I mean, the sack of Baghdad, which of course people are very familiar with, that brought one of the pinnacles of Islamic society to its knees. Now, even though it's true they may have provided other benefits more broadly, it's very hard to quantify what was lost by that. The sheer scale of what was lost is quite difficult to get your head around. Yeah, I agree with, with you on the fact that it's, it's difficult to quantify um, because of the sources we have. But it's is it the question is, is it worse than what happened during other wars in the world at that time? And in any case, wars in the Middle Ages never bring as much death as wars today. It's not industrial time. It's like people, uh, we, we cannot, the way we kill today and the number of people we can kill today, it has nothing to do with the Middle Age. I mean, it's, it's a very different period. But uh, in any case, uh, war and destruction are horrible. Uh, and that's true. But then they are also oriented um, uh, reconstruction. Like when you look at more deeply, and there are many historians doing this now, into the sack of Baghdad, for instance, what you see is that, first of all, they never destroyed the entire city, and they were against the idea of doing it because they wanted to have a wealthy city that's very much into, you know, typically the Mongol mind. They want taxpayers. They don't want, you know, dead people everywhere. Uh, they also uh, disagree on the fact that the killing of the caliph was a real big problem and they disagree among themselves. It was not like a common decision. Uh, and then very, uh, very early on after that, they were, and even before, they were uh, supporting, you know, Muslim culture in many ways. So there's a political issue there in what happened in Baghdad in 1258, but it doesn't represent the general Mongol, you know, politics, even all during the conquest period. 
So the thing is, maybe we should rewrite this whole conquest. Um, you know, per thing because it's now when you look at you books, you see only millions of dead, but we have no idea of numbers. Mm. Uh, that's impossible to say because of sources. And in, imagine the Middle Age; people don't count like today. It was not their their way of doing it anyway. Right. So what we can say is they did not raise city into the uh, like to the ground. That's we know through archaeology was not the case. Uh, and there were, of course, horrible moments like war, like everywhere. War is horrible. There's not, I mean, of of course. So, uh, but do, the question is, uh, we discuss that often with my students. Because it's a, one of the biggest empire in the world, does it mean that they killed more than other people during the conquest? Because that's sometimes what people think. Right. Or because it's bigger, it means they killed more. But they also, the Mongols were not very numerous. They were only few conquerors and they developed a lot of strategies to scare people, to scare people to death, but not to kill them because they needed them as workers, as, you know, craftsmen, you know, uh, you know, mm. human forces. So I think, um, uh, of course, no way we should deny uh, that the horrors of destruction and war, but at the same time, it's important to, you know, think about middle age that's different period from today mm. I, I wanted to end by thinking a bit about um like what the mongols would have thought about the settled people because we've talked about it from the perspective of settled peoples what it felt like when these people on horseback the nomads arrived but i wonder what you what you think about how the nomads saw the settled people that they conquered because you said that they never settled no matter all of the lands and all of the cities that they conquered, they never started to live like the people that they had conquered. So what did they think of these settled peoples? Well, I really like your question. I think it's, it's a key question. Uh, also, because um, if you, we really want to understand those nomadic powers of the past, we need to try to think like them and to see with their eyes. And it's not easy, but it's a very, very important question. Well, I tried to track my document um, at the moment when, you know, Mongols would say something about, um, you know, settlers. And I, the only thing I remember, one is they don't, un well, actually I would say they don't understand them. They say they built towers and they built fortresses and walls around themselves. But then they get trapped into, you know, in their own place. So they didn't understand that the fact that people would fortify their own place uh, because it's not for them. It's like you're at, you're under attack. You move or you will hide. But if you're inside uh, four walls, then you're in jail already. So that's I uh, I think that I would say that something that come up one or twice in the sources very clearly. Uh, the other thing also is. Um, well, uh, they believe that their way of life is more uh, to uh, benefit that you don't have if you are uh, living in a city. One is that in a tent, it's more comfortable. Uh, imagine 13th century when it's minus 40. Uh, well, in a tent, you can create an atmosphere with, you know, all the um, furs and the, the special furnitures and the way you organize it with fire and all very warm and very comfortable. If you think about a castle, like in France in the 13th century, I can tell you that it was not that comfortable and, and, and warm. Yeah. So they think about comfort also for themselves. And um, finally, um, there's also one key thing they don't understand with the settlers is that for them, what is more important than everything, maybe it's freedom. 
you, when you're a nomad, you're free. You have at least you you're more you have more freedom than when you're a, a citizen, like living in a city. And so they, I would say, sometimes they really don't understand. But they are they always open their camp to um, you know uh, settlers. Uh, to you know, have, you know, to offer them to live with them actually, and and they know that their life is dif- can be difficult for different people. They say, well, like especially missionaries would come and you know talk religion to the nomads, to the Mongols. Uh, they suffered sometimes very much from the nomadic way of life, which is so different. Uh, and uh, and nomads knew that, and they say, well, it's hard for them, so we should you know be, be kind to them, and uh, and and they were you know aware of that. Did you ever feel when you were thinking about what they thought of settled peoples, did you ever think, given that the majority of the world today is settled, did you ever think that maybe there are lessons uh, from the Mongols in, in how we live today or how, how we should think about living today? Yeah, I think I think there are lessons. Um, maybe uh, I, I, let's say that um, it's important to know that there are other ways of doing and other ways of living and other kind of relationship with the nature, other kind of, you know, um, relationship to the family. And that's uh, what I always also say to my students, like history is not like a simple lesson. You cannot just take the 13th century and say, okay, it's, we should do that now. And no, of course not. It's different world, but, uh, but we need to, it's important to know that it was not always like this. And, uh, and I think nomad ex- ex- experience in life and culture and politics and all is, is give us, an, you know, so many um, different views of how we can organize ourselves as human, human societies. So that's where I would say there's, you know, something to, you know, important for us today. Marie Favreau, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Faisal. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can find Marie's book, The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World, in all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.